Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. Back in June 2022, we spoke to political sociologist Salvatore Barbonis about the state of Australian universities, how they're funded, and more broadly, what function a university serves in the 21st century. Hint, not much. Uh, the, the, the teaching is woefully underemphasized at Australian universities, uh, which almost seem to promote bad teaching. And I think a lot of the reason for that is there's very little accountability for teaching. In the US, there's a very strong emphasis on teaching quality, which is not to say that all teachers are good. It's to say that the minimum standards that are acceptable are much higher than the minimum standards in Australia. Chalk and talk, as we call it, just going to the board or going to PowerPoint um, and talking over your slides is so embedded as the default mechanism. Uh, in the US, if you simply read off your lecture slides, you can probably get away with it if you already have tenure. But if you're a new professor, you would be strongly discouraged from that. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and I'm joined by Jonathan Astro. Now, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Ricky. Did you uh, did you go to university? Um, I did. Just, you did? Just a little bit. You spent a bit of cash, <laughs> did you? Well, actually, a lot, yes. Okay, lot. well, I would encourage you not to listen to today's podcast, because this is going to... You know, you're going to learn about uh, the university system from Salvatore Babonis. Uh, and um, well, I, I don't, I don't think I can get out of it. Like, I'm part of the show. Like, yeah, right. Okay, that's, <laughs> I, I that's don't not going to work. work. Well, anyway, look, just just block your ears and ask your questions if you must. Let's do it. Salvatore Barbonis is a political sociologist at the University of Sydney and an elected member of the National Committee on US-China Relations. His book, The New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism and the Tyranny of Experts, was named Best on Politics in 2018 by the Wall Street Journal. He has written dozens of academic papers and has also penned op-eds for The Australian, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian Financial Review, Spectator Australia, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs and The National Interest. He is also the regular host of the live stream show On Liberty for the Centre for Independent Studies. His most recent book is Australia's Universities, Can They Reform? Salvatore, welcome to the New Flesh. Great to be here. Okay, so when I was stalking you online, I came across your Twitter page and there was a pinned tweet explaining that you had left the platform due to some censorship that we may have seen in the past, but it seems you're back. So would you mind telling us uh, why you left and what made you return? I came back with a thank you, Elon tweet. The, I left after the January 6, uh, post-January 6, 2021 repression in the United States. I think that was way out of line and way overboard. In fact, I'm writing a book about it. <laughs> so take a look in 2023. Um, but I really don't think that it's the role of technology platforms to be deciding what people can hear. And I think Twitter went way overboard. Other platforms did as well, but Twitter especially. And so I... Uh, got off Twitter in, until they uh, come back with a more open approach to political speech. Well, what, what do you make of the reactions we've seen to Elon Musk's potential buyout of Twitter from the politicians, the media and other establishment figures? Because the way they're talking, is, it, it's as though, and I hate to say it, it's as though Hitler has just taken over. It has exposed an alarming willingness to repress others. And I think that is very anti-democratic. And speaking as an American, I think it is fundamentally un-American. Uh, but 
you know, many people profess to believe in democracy, but only believe in it when it gives them the results they want. So why are establishment figures so obsessed with misinformation and disinformation, as we've seen, and we've seen we've seen the new Ministry of Truth being set up as as well. So why is it why is it their business if I want to believe in lizard people or the Great Reset? Uh, having weird beliefs used to be kooky and charming. Now it seems to be criminal. Well, miss this, and let's not forget malinformation, which is one oh, they the haven't new- been <laughs> they haven't been using much lately. But Jen Psaki uh, did like that trio before um, she got a lot of criticism for it. Uh, uh, Look, the American political establishment and political establishments globally have been alarmed by the rise of populism. Now, I think they've caused the rise of populism. Populism is something that breaks out when the organized political establishment does, does not want to accommodate the views of people. It doesn't find a place for them. And when the establishment can't find a place for dissent, it breaks out into a kind of inchoate, leaderless um, anger against the establishment. So I'm not surprised at all that the American political establishment and other establishments around the world are now very worried about losing their monopoly on the public sphere but they're going to lose it. And if they don't open up Twitter to allow it there, it'll go somewhere else. Uh, you know, populism is not, a, it's not an organized political movement advocating for any particular policy. Just looking at my own country in the U.S., we had Bernie Sanders progressive populism and Donald Trump conservative populism. Uh, which one is the real, will the real populism please stand up? Uh, both are simply expressions of discontent with the options being offered to them by the political establishment. And when the political establishment goes back to creating space for dissent and creating uh, representation for people's views, those movements will very quickly disintegrate. Well, before we park populism for a little bit, uh, I I have just heard that Musk uh, would let President Trump back on Twitter. What's your take on on this? Oh, fantastic. He should never have been kicked off in the first place. Uh, I I mean, in, in a world where... In a world where you can advocate, directly advocate um, violence on Twitter, where terrorists can be on Twitter, uh, the idea that, well, because the president of former president of the United States is somehow vaguely disreputable, he should not be allowed on Twitter is is just ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Donald Trump will come back on Twitter, but um, hopefully he will. And certainly Twitter would be a better place for having Trump on it. Well, he he has his own platform now, doesn't he? What's what's calling it, John? He has his amusing uh, (laughs) own platform. I don't think anyone takes that seriously. I'm not even sure he does. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I look forward to the return of the Donald. I kind of miss him. So uh, perhaps we'll turn our attention to uh, the university system and the subject of your latest book, uh, Australia's Universities, Can They Reform? Now, I don't think I've ever read in a single document a a breakdown of the Australian university system as as you have done in this book. So, and which I think would be, you know, Ricky and I have done a bit of tertiary education, maybe more than we should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, so this is a book that perhaps we could have read at the beginning of all of that would have been nice. But <laughs> so let's start at the beginning and step through some, we won't really want to step through the basics because I don't think any, and no one asks these questions. So let's start with the big ones. What is a university and what is the point of a university? Well, let me start by saying about the book, I wrote the book because I was really tired of seeing all the critics of universities 
focusing on, oh, things were so much better back in my day. You know, students these days don't study. Administrators these days are just quashing free speech. Uh, there's no way you can say what you want at a university. All these kind of, um, if you'll forgive me, very uh, petulant old man approaches to university reform. And what I wanted to do was something different, something very data-driven. The book has 23 tables and figures, tons of detailed data about the finance and character of the university system. It is not uh, in any way a polemic. It's a, a serious social science approach to how our universities in Australia are managed. What is a university? Well, I mean, quite simply, a, a, a university is a, an institution that's the heir to 800 years of development, first in Western Europe, uh, ultimately spreading to the entire world. And it's how we uh, do post-high school education. It's that simple. Now, I do think that the core of the university is doing undergraduate education. But if you were to talk to university administrators today, you'd get a, a very different picture. <laughs> they would say that a university does three things, teaching, research, and service. And they would like to unpack those three things have a dedicated teaching arm uh, of non-researchers, have a dedicated research arm, and have some little appendage that uh, they can hire a small number of people and say that these people are doing some kind of service to the community. I don't think that works. I don't think that's the traditional model of what a university was, and I don't think it's a sustainable model for what the university should be in the future. Well, um, I'm, I'm curious to know, how, how do universities get their money and what do they spend it on? It, it, it can't just be student fees, right? In Australia, universities get their money from the Commonwealth. It's really that simple. Uh, of course, students can pay for their education up front. They would be unwise to do so, given financially unwise, I mean, given the extraordinarily generous financing terms offered by the Australian government. I've met people who have done that, and I must say, having internally felt a little unimpressed with them, I'm like, oh, why would you do? Why would you pay it's up front? It's financially like unwise because if you have that money to pay up front, you'd be better off investing that money in the stock market, <laughs> taking <laughs> taking the low interest government loan and financing your future retirement out of it. There's really no reason to pay up front in Australia. Uh, the the government uh, finance program for students, uh, you know, Hex Help, is uh, essentially a tax, a, a, a zero interest loan that is fundamentally a tax on university graduates who earn high incomes. Uh, people say that, oh, they have to do vocational studies because if they don't, they could never pay back their loans. Well, that may be true in America, but that's not true in Australia. I mean, in Australia, if you become a starving artist, you'll never make enough money to pay back your student loan debt. <laughs> and that's fine, right? You live your whole life at a low income, you'll never pay the student loan. So it's not really a loan. It's really a graduate tax. Now, universities, of course, have developed a substantial second stream of income, and that is international students. It's cash, uh, you know, cash-paying international students. The third stream, which is Commonwealth research grants, were historically, and I think still are in a legal sense, tied to teaching. Uh, the Commonwealth has a roughly $1 billion annual research grant, block grant that it gives to universities. And there are also grants through the ARC and grants for postgraduate research students. All told, the Australian government pays something like $2 billion, roughly $2 billion a year for research at universities. And the whole purpose of that $2 billion, when it was created, was to allow, the, to support teachers in doing research. So the first Commonwealth grant funding for research was because science teachers needed laboratory spaces. 
And then, of course, humanities scholars said, well, we need libraries. Uh, you know, these were not direct teaching expenses, but nonetheless necessary in order to have a model where research active people taught students. So originally, and in my book, I explicitly tie it, um, Commonwealth research funding was geared towards the education of Australian students. And even today, it's not explicitly tied to education, but implicitly it is because only institutions that teach undergraduate Australian students have access to the research grants. Let's drill down into these terms, though, so because this is a term that I had that I had to read a whole book on, the craft of research. But when I was doing, doing uh, my work, that I'd, I'd never really thought about this word before. What is research, and how is it different from scholarship? <laughs> well, there are formal definitions of these. The, the answer is that historically, these words have been used interchangeably. But the scientists, as a class, uh, have appropriated the term research and through OECD mechanisms, something called the Frascati Manual, uh, have formalized a definition of research that's very much, um, very much centered on science understandings, big science understandings of what research is. That is, research must be budgeted. It must create new human knowledge. Uh, it must be explicit. That is, you must have a set of explicit goals and hypotheses that you are testing. Um, in fact, when they finally added the language, instead of scientific research, the OECD started saying science, social science, and humanities research. They gave one explicit example of what research might be in history. Their example was an historian might try to create an historical timeline of paleoclimate data <laughs> based on <laughs> historical records. And that was their model for what kind of research you could do in history. Now, what all of us in the humanities and social sciences do has been technically relegated to this category scholarship, which has a lower prestige. The implication is that scholars merely reorganize knowledge that already exists. So, for example, if an historian, if, if there is already the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle written in the Middle Ages and an historian does work on the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, its authorship and, you know, the implications for European history of the events recorded in it. Well, all you're really doing uh, is reorganizing existing knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> that so may it's not essentially be, musical uh, chairs. <laughs> yeah, you're changing the chairs on the on the humanities Titanic. Uh, and of course, that's ridiculous. But in the Frascati manual, I do no research. I've published dozens of papers in research journals. I, I write books. I every year have to give a record to the university of a list of research publications. Uh, but because my research is not explicitly funded, that explicitly budgeted as research, because I don't have a timeline of, of when certain deliverables will be due and how they'll be done. Uh, my work is not technically under the Frascati manual research. But I'm fascinated by this because why aren't some of our of the of the more left-leaning uh of, of our of our kind who perhaps are writing papers about you know how william shakespeare is a race but racist and i don't know like a bell hooks sort of reading of whatever how come they're not more disappointed that they don't have the prestige like like the like if you're a full cultural marxist shouldn't they like i love the idea that even if you're like more into more of a classic sort of thing or you're them you we're both we're both sort of being devalued shouldn't they be more hopped up about this um i think they are not think. I know they are unaware that they have been put in this category. Now, we're all vaguely aware of the prestige of big science, that universities want to fund big science. Of all the 
50 or so major research initiatives from Australian universities uh, at the group of eight universities, I'm sorry, the group of eight you know, research intensive universities. Not a single one is an unambiguously humanities oriented <laughs> major research initiative. They're all science and a few token social science projects. But the big money goes into, you know, the, the quantum computing and the telescopes and the, you know, the, the big science efforts. And, and well, it should, the big money should go there. But the um, we're very aware that the big money goes to big science. What we're unaware of is that in the minute of the reporting systems, what we do is not technically being counted as research. And we're unaware of it because we, we file research outputs with, uh, with TEXA, with, you know, with our universities, and through that to the tertiary education quality standards uh, uh, um, administration. But, um, you know, we, we don't count. And I think in the long run, that's a real threat to all of us in the humanities and social sciences, because as things become formalized, as systems increasingly come under scrutiny, they'll find that we're not doing research. And if we're not doing research, why should we get 40% of our time for research? Uh, we're all, most of us are workloaded 40-40-20, research teaching service. Yes, well, I, I remember, this This must have been maybe last year, the year before, I think the federal government was talking about making fees higher for humanities subjects and and making them cheaper to, to sort of push people more into STEM and that, that sort of thing. They did. That was Dan, Dan T. Hens' job-ready graduates package. Yeah, that went through. Do, do universities care much about the humanities? I mean, it seems like all the fundings, you know, comes through the hard sciences and, and, and you see, you know, politicians sort of pushing more for, for, for students to go through the, science, the hard sciences. So what, what's your take on that? The humanities are disappearing in Australia as in the rest of the world. We don't so much notice it disappearing because so far there have been very few job losses. Instead, what's happening is that job expansion is occurring elsewhere. Uh, and so it's a slow kind of lingering death on the vine instead of a, you know, a grim reaper coming and cutting us all down. Uh, that may still happen. <laughs> Some universities have eliminated departments, but in general, we're we're just being allowed to slowly shrink through attrition. And that's not just in Australia. Uh, in the U.S., it's been the same thing. Uh, you know, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which has had very famous uh, history and linguistics and other humanities departments, um, simply has become an all-engineering school. Now, of course, it was always primarily engineering, but I think if I remember the statistics right, there were something like fewer than 20 humanities majors uh, at the whole university. And that's a change, right? These, these departments, which had previously been very high prestige, you know, you have the Noam Chomsky's at Master's Institute of Technology. Um, he won't be replaced. And that's really what's, uh, what's going on, is that we are just being allowed to disintegrate. I mean, today in Australia, there are very few robust humanities departments outside the group of eight and even in the group of eight, uh, not all of the group of eight have a department of, you know, have a department of history, <laughs> have a department of English literature. Uh, you would think every university would have these things. But in fact, if you look carefully, you'll see that what was previously a history department, an English department, is now a, an amalgamated service department called culture and thought. Yes, <laughs> right. They seem to they seem to 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 lump in literature and with it, they're trying to just bolt it on to, you know, something else you know, as as an as an appendage. And I I just am so I, obviously 
I've got a romantic view of the humanities, you know. I want it to be the School of Athens, that painting, you know, like I've, I, obviously. So it's really, I find it, and it's worse in Australia as well. I mean, you must know this because, you know, you've got the two perspectives, but our anti-intellectualism here and our, our it's a, aggressive, it's an aggressive anti-intellectualism and the, 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 the people sort of get, if you talk about books or if you talk about like anything uh, from that that could be classed as coming from the humanities, his, even history, people get angry. They're, they're, they're not like even dismissive. They're dismissive at first and angry at worst. Do you know what I mean? Like like that you're even talking about it. And, and the way that, just to put a bow on, I want to get your perspective on this. My, my experience has been that even younger people uh, who are coming out of high school, they say stuff like, you know, why do I have to do this? I, why do I have to read this or that? Like it's got nothing to do with my life. I don't care about it. And you just go, well, has no one ever told you that having these a, a, a perspective from you know these works of history or, or literature or whatever might make you a better business person or whatever. I mean, does this any of this resonating with you, Salvatore? Well, I encourage everyone to get on YouTube and take a look at the Monty Python University of Wollongong philosophy department skit. So the idea that Australia is um, is anti-intellectual is one of long standing, but I don't think there's much truth to it. Uh, the whole world is anti-intellectual. The, uh, the question is simply, what do we make students do? Uh, in the U.S., everyone has to do a bit of humanities and a bit of science. I mean, it's usually required at universities that students do mathematics, at least through algebra at most U.S. universities. And humanities students in Australia would, would be feel oppressed. They'd be protesting if they were forced to do a little <laughs> bit of algebra. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that you should be broadly educated, liberally educated, I might say, uh, is one of very long-standing. It's one I genuinely believe in, but it cuts both ways. It, it means making, I mean, I mean, the real future for the humanities is that engineering and business students should still be doing some humanities. It, and the problem is that neither side wants that. The, the engineers don't want to waste a year of their curriculum on humanities and social sciences. But my experience of humanities and social sciences colleagues is they only want to teach people who are going to go on towards a PhD in their field. And they don't want to teach the great unwashed of nursing, social work, uh, business, uh, engineering, <laughs> science students. And, and that's a recipe for irrelevance. I think there's a lot of selfishness among academics, well, among everybody, but especially among academics. And as long as their job is secure, they're not really thinking about the health of the discipline and the health of the university in general. There's a lot of self-indulgence. And that's not just among my individual colleagues. My book focuses a lot on the self-indulgence of university academics. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry to kind of broaden your question out to the whole universe, but academic self-indulgence through a lack of oversight um, is rampant. And it, it's very self-destructive, not for us as individuals, but it's self-destructive for well, the idea of the humanities having a future, for example. Well, let's get a little bit more specific uh, and talk about Australian universities here. Can, can, can you give us a bit of an insider's view on the quality of Australian universities? Like like overall, in terms of teaching, research, uh, facilities, philosophy, like, like where does Australia sit? The research is as good as anywhere. It's world class. The teaching is horrible. Uh, the, the, the teaching is woefully underemphasized 
at Australian universities, uh, which almost seem to promote bad teaching. And I think a lot of the reason for that is there's very little accountability for teaching. Uh, in the U.S., and, you know, I've had experience not just at, I mean, I did my PhD at Johns Hopkins. It's a very elite university. But I also taught for five years at the University of Pittsburgh, which is, you know, a working class state university. Um, so I've had experience of both. And in the U.S., there's a very strong emphasis on teaching quality, which is not to say that all teachers are good. It's to say that the minimum standards that are acceptable are much higher than the minimum standards in Australia. I've had to reduce the quality of my teaching simply to comply with the administrative environment of teaching at an Australian university because the rules are so chalk and talk, as we call it, just going to the board or going to PowerPoint um, and talking over your slides is so embedded as the default mechanism here that it is difficult to do anything more creative. Uh, in the U.S., if you simply read off your lecture slides, you can probably get away with it if you already have tenure. But if you're a new professor, you would be strongly discouraged from that. Um, there's, a, you know, I mean, well, to give you this, the most, the simplest, most straightforward, you know, one cut says it all. Um, in the U.S., I was had a teaching, a, a peer teaching observation every year with written feedback from one of my peers who attended my class. In 14 years in Australia, no one has ever attended any of my classes. I mean, that goes for students as well as <laughs> my <laughs> colleagues. But, but that's, and that's the other thing. I, in the U.S., I taught a, a 200 student big lecture where I could not take attendance, but I counted every day, uh, every you know, day, and I, and I found about 85% attendance. I walked into my first big lecture in Sydney, and I walked in mid-semester because you know calendars differed, and I picked up the class halfway through. And I walked into a 500-student lecture hall that was supposed to have 499 students in it, and there were maybe 12 or 15 scattered in this huge hall. And I said, "Where?" I thought it was in the wrong room. Uh, I said, mm -hmm. where is everyone? And it's like, well, lecture's not required. You know, it's just the attitude. I had a student literally yesterday. He kept showing up to tutorial without coming to lecture. And, and I told him, well, I really ask that students come to lecture before because my tutorial was immediately after the lecture. So I could see students, you know, who were appearing. And he said, oh, I'm confused. You know, which one is important? For, is lecture, he actually asked me, is lecture important for this class? <laughs> and I said, well, of course lecture is important for this class. I mean, why do I do it? Um, but that attitude is so deeply ingrained that it's difficult to get away from. I mean, I'll just give you one more, I mean, one more anecdote. I, I mean, I, I assign readings. Uh, in the U.S., of course, many students didn't do the readings. And they would be embarrassed, red-faced, and apologize. In Australia, no one does the readings, and they just shrug their shoulders. So of course, I don't have to do the readings. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I, I mean, I don't want to to you know somehow brag that U.S. students are so much better. They're not. They also don't do their readings. But at least there's a norm. At least they understand that by not doing their readings, they're breaking some norm that they are not delivering on a responsibility they have. Uh, here, there's just no sense of that. Well, where with you, Salvatore? Like, like Ricky's got endless ex experience teaching uh, at the university uh, level, and you were just complaining about that last night about uh, about uh, you know the, 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 again this this aggressive laziness. Uh, which but is I don't probably blame what the students. It's, it's the environment they've been placed in. Uh, when I taught introduction introduction to sociology, when I took on my own big one thousand student intro class, I relentlessly pushed attendance. And I was able to get attendance up to a level of about 75 to 80% for the first semester. But eventually these new students who, you know, 
first time at university, first year students, they realize that no one else is going to any classes. They don't have to go to their other classes. And second semester, everything kind of dropped off. And by second half of second semester, I couldn't get anyone into the room because the norm is not being emphasized across the entire university because my colleagues don't think that it, it matters. And I mean, it's um, very striking in the U.S. If I t- when I taught an intro class, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one hour a day. Here, when I teach an intro class, it's two hours, one sitting. Well, that just you know, shows you the, the same, the same class, same number of credit points, but um, you know, I have to work much harder for my teaching bread in, in the U.S. than I have ever had to work in Australia. I had one, one. I went back to to study not not too long ago. I studied a humanities degree, and there was one uh, uh, tutor who was incredible. She taught literatures of war, and she's American actually, uh, and and quite respected. And and on the first day, she she said, we, "We take things really seriously here. You have to read a book a week, and uh, you know that's what we're doing. So if you don't like that, then you can you're more than welcome to to to, to not come next week." She was really hard on it, and it was like old fashioned. Like we were dead quiet the whole semester. It was one of the most transformative experiences I'd had. It was the greatest unit I'd ever done and I mentioned her teaching style to a co- uh, someone uh, one of the other tutors because I was I knew them and stuff and they were like rolling their eyes and they were they were as you say it wasn't it, it was they were sneering at, at this and I I, I found that uh, indicative of, of the difference yeah very much so um, I've look I've tried it but I've been savaged on the student evaluations when I've tried it so sorry to jump in here but but my experience is that that if if you want to be that way and, and you want to try and lift standards that that you, you get a lot of pushback from the students and then yeah. that, that flows through to the administration and then that comes back to you as being, you know, you're being too hard on the students, you know, you can't ask this of them, you can't insist that they come, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Like, uh, h- h- how, do you, how do you change the culture? Um, I don't change the culture. Uh, we change the culture and it has to start at the top. It has to start with vice chancellors saying that teaching is important that minimum standards will be applied in teaching. When vice chancellors want to do something about teaching, they generally have a teaching award. You know, you find one good teacher, right, who you reward and applaud. Uh, it's much more important to bring up the bottom, to get all teachers meeting certain minimum requirements. I mean, to begin with, showing up, right? I mean, that, that's the, the number one thing. Are you there on time and you teach the whole class? Well, if you could just get that, you know, you'd, you'd be really improving Australian universities. But beyond showing up, vice chancellors have to make researchers teach. So a big problem is a lot of the high productivity researchers who've been recruited to Australian universities are recruited into research-only positions. So while in the U.S., you know, the whole point of having a Nobel Prize winner in the U.S. is to attract students. You have this Nobel Prize winner teaching introduction to chemistry, and that you put on all your promotional materials. (laughs) You know, come study with us. You take intro to chemistry with a Nobel Prize winning chemist. Uh, In Australia, that same person would be shielded from ever having to deal with students. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the rankings. So I want to get, want to get if I get back to the book, um, Australia's universities, can they reform? Uh, spoiler alert, the answer is no. But the, uh, you know, one of the focus of the book is on incentives. So the international ranking systems that Australian universities pursue are almost entirely based on research. That's different from the U.S. rankings. U.S. rankings are produced by U.S. News and World Report, and they focus very heavily on student metrics, like how competitive is the entry to the program, what are the salaries of people leaving the program? You know, what do students uh, say about the program? Uh, there's a lot of, how, what are the class sizes in the program? There are a lot of student-focused metrics in the rankings. And so American university presidents are very student-focused. They want to do well in the rankings. Australia has all the data to do that sort of ranking. We have the quilt surveys, quality indicators in learning and teaching. And we have Texas research 
records. So we could combine the quilt surveys with the TEXA research records to produce a you know, race to the top sort of very detailed ranking. I mean, we even know in Australia how much your salary is increased between your initial salary and your three years later salary, depending on what university you went to. All that data is there. Uh, but the Australian government and Australian organizations uh, have shown no interest in creating an Australia ranking that would hold universities accountable. Um, instead, they simply use the international rankings. And the international rankings, because teaching is incommensurate across countries, they simply use the international journal databases. And for that, worse than that, they only use journals because that's what's in the databases. They don't use books. So there's essentially no humanities and very little social sciences in the international rankings. It's all how many scientific research articles did you churn out? Right. And Australian yes. universities do very well on that. We have eight top 100 universities. All, all eight of the group of eight are top 100 on one or the other of the major rankings. And that's a sign of pathology. I mean, that, that, that eight out of 39 universities, uh, you know, 20% of Australia's universities in the top 100 is unparalleled around the world. I mean, no other country has 20% of its universities being in the global top 100. It sounds like an accomplishment here, but in reality, it's a sign that Australian universities have perverted their political economy. They've taken all of this very generous support they received from the Australian Commonwealth and turned it around into pursuing big science research projects conducted by people who don't actually teach Australian students. So I, I don't want to skip to the end because we've got a lot to cover, but I, I'm fascinated to know, Salvatore, what you just said about the rankings is is plain and uh, and I could imagine quite uh, uh, shocking. Now, if you have have you had the chance to put that forward to an administrator one on one when no one else is around and that like someone that won't just immediately blow you off and and do, were they receptive at all did they at least acknowledge what you had said um they don't acknowledge it because to acknowledge it would be to lose face and you know it, it's create i mean as an administrator you have to be very careful about what you say even in private um they're aware of it let me put it that way uh, now, some are aware of it and embrace it that, well, why wouldn't we want to be excellent? I think the majority viewpoint, both among administrators and among business people and government officials I've talked to, is what's, and journalists, is, well, what's wrong with being excellent? Of course we want to be excellent. And when you talk to them, okay, at least insider academics are aware that that pursuit of research excellence um, in isolation may not be good for the university. But I think they also feel that they're trapped in this system that rewards that. If they didn't do it, they would be on the way out, right? It, it's the, their job is, you know, when, when you have a metric, you try to hit it. What gets measured gets done in the old management aphorism. And right now, what gets measured is international university rankings. And this has all happened since 2002. There were no international university rankings before 2002. Uh, reorganizing universities and it, reorganizing an entire university system to game the rankings is really something that's happened in the last 15 years. It's not, um, it's not an age-old practice. Well, it's interesting what, what you're saying there about um, how generous the, the Australian government is in terms of, of, of helping to, to fund universities. But all, all I ever hear is that Australian universities are underfunded. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, what well, does underfunding yeah. actually mean? Well, first of all, in public economics, there's no such thing as underfunding a public service. You simply fund it better or worse. If, if you fund your roads department better, you can have beautiful, clean, perfectly paved highways all the time. And if you fund it worse, you'll have a few cracks. And if you fund it even worse, you'll have some potholes. Uh, 
you know, you can have better or worse services. Australia's funding for universities is above the OECD average, above the European Union average, above the US average and the UK average. So on, com- on a comparative basis, Australia is funding its universities reasonably well. Uh, could we take more money? Of course we could. And I think the problem here is that the narrative on university funding is driven by uh, three kinds of organizations. It's, it's driven by universities. It's driven by their trade associations, Group of Eight Universities Australia. And it's driven by the unions, the you know, National Tertiary Education Union. Well, all three of these have a common interest in seeing more university funding, right? Of course we all want more money. Um that doesn't mean that they're underfunded. It just means that someone should be pushing back with real data about funding levels. Hmm. Yes. Well, it's just staggering because that because that the the again old fashioned crying poor is what we what we heard in the in the newspaper. Like it's it's sort of like you know with no it's this we need oh like during the pandemic oh oh we need uh, an injection or the whole thing will pack up and and with no. Uh, supporting evidence or really no case they didn't make a case as to as to why they shouldn't fold do you know what i mean like they didn't they, i didn't hear a lot of oh the reason you need us is because of a b and c uh the argument during the pandemic was the australian government has to give more money in order to help universities maintain australia's research infrastructure is how they put it they got Sleeping an extra language. billion dollars extra billion on top of the existing research block grants. That came despite the fact that in retrospect, we now know that universities hardly lost anything as a group. University of Sydney actually had more money coming in from international students. Um, Almost all of the losses that universities experienced during the pandemic were investment losses, and those will presumably be made up as investments rebound to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, What's more, on top of that, the universities had long said in response to criticisms of their international student intakes, and I hope we do get to international students, that, yeah, that they'd long said that, well, it's all variable revenue attached to variable costs. If the international student flows dry up, we can just stop funding these initiatives. Reasonably enough, why not? The, The phrase was, why not make hay while the sun shines? But then when rain came, they said, well, we can't scale back these efforts. We need a government to fill the gap. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, which way do you want it? Uh, you know, the fact is it's the Australian government standing by and backstopping everything. Well, let's talk about international students, uh, maybe to start basic. What, what proportion of the intake is from overseas? And, you know, how does that stack up with, with, with universities from, from, from overseas? Australia has an extraordinary number of international students. Australian universities were already among the most internationalized in the world 20 years ago. Uh, In the ensuing 20 years, Australian universities have gone off the charts. I I mean, it's hard to exaggerate. Uh, Roughly one-third, one-third of our students are overseas students. And that doesn't even include New Zealand students or Australian permanent, re- you know, children of Australian permanent residents, they count as domestic students. So the true number of international students is even larger. There's no university system in the world other than Australia's that is so extraordinarily, um, I don't want to say reliant, because I think we can make a big argument and I make an argument in the book that we're actually losing money on international students, but that has such a high concentration of international students. And the reason behind it is simple. The Australian government is paying for the basic infrastructure of the universities. 
And international students represent pure free cash flow from the university standpoint. You know, just tack on a few extra tutors and the rest of the international student tuition is yours to do what you want with because the classroom's been paid for by the Commonwealth. The teacher's salary has been paid for by the Commonwealth. The research that the teacher's doing has been paid for by the Commonwealth. Libraries has been paid for by the Commonwealth. The laboratories have been paid for by the Commonwealth. And this model, this funding model, is why Australian universities have been incentivized to go to extraordinary lengths to recruit international students in a way that you just don't see anywhere else. I mean, the average Australian university is roughly 20% international students. The most international public university in the entire United States is 19% international. Uh, It's just extraordinary. I mean, places in Australia that no one outside the country has ever heard of have more international students than... uh, then University of UC San Diego has 19% international, the most in the U.S. It's just extraordinary. And it's driven by the financing. Uh, international students give vice chancellors a free cash flow to spend how they like. It's purely at their discretion. Whereas Australian students, of course, their tuition revenue has to be used to pay for the fixed costs of running the university. Mm. Well, there is this perception out there that these students are charged a premium to come down under here and study. And, and yeah, as you say, uh, these fees are, are, are used uh, at, at at the Chancellor's discretion, but uh, presumably they're there to help make the services uh, and the facilities at the university better. But you say that's not quite the case. No, they're, they're being undercharged. They're being offered a discount. And the reason is that when Deloitte Access Economics estimated for the government the cost of education, they only put into their estimates the cost of hiring the teachers, as if the classrooms just exist. <laughs> you know, the IT systems just exist, right? So, so compared to what Australia, the Australian government is paying to educate, quote unquote, an Australian student, yes, international student tuitions are very high. Compared to what the Australian government spends some total for the purpose of maintaining universities for Australian students, international student tuition is low, which is to say that if you attribute, I mean, if you, if you assume that the entire reason the Australian government supports universities is to educate students, that the Australian government has no particular interest in having a new book written about Jane Austen, right? The only reason they're funding this book to be written about Jane Austen is so that someone will be teaching English, Like, that's why you fund the book. Um, It's just incredible. Um, If you put all of the costs of running the university, I mean, the whole reason the federal government is spending on a library is to educate students. It's not just like a a budget item. Oh, we need 39 university libraries in Australia. Uh, It's there to educate students. If you put all of these costs in and lump them together as the cost of educating Australian students, international students are not paying a proportionate share of that. That is, international students are not paying enough to cover their usage of the library, to cover their usage of laboratories, Mm. even to cover their lecturers. They're only paying enough to cover their tutors, the marginal costs, and then everything else is free cash flow for the universities. Well, when you explain this in your book, I thought of of a... uh, It reminded me of what they say in Goodfellas when they own that bar. They say, you take the alcohol in the front and then you take it out the back and sell it at at half the price. It doesn't matter. It's all profit. So this is what I thought about with with the international student situation. They're they're being creative with... uh, It's all cream. So we can can, uh, charge them half and get more in. 
I think you're absolutely right that there is an, an implicit discount on international students. Now, it may not be 50%, it may not be half, but it's there. Uh, it, no, it's there, and, and it's hard to calculate the exact number, but we know it's there because we can see it in all of the circumstantial evidence. Uh, Australia has the most international students in the world. Why is it such an attractive destination? Not because of our great universities. Even our poor universities attract tons of international students. It's because we are underpriced. You also see that with when you compare the value of the Australian dollar to our international student inflows. When the Australian dollar is high, when it was riding up in 20, uh, 2011, 2012 at parity with the U.S. dollar, our international student intake plummeted because we were suddenly a, an expensive degree or a fully priced degree. Um, with the Australian dollar at 70 cents to the U.S. dollar, we're attractive. It's, it's all a price game. And the only other country that's competitive with Australia on price is the United Kingdom. And the reason the United Kingdom is competitive with Australia on price is they have pretty much the same funding system that we do. And so UK mm -hmm. universities are now, to use the uh, British expression, hoovering up uh, international students because previously they had to accept EU students on the same basis as domestic students. Now EU students are foreign students and great, uh, they can bring in the world's international students on the same model that Australian universities have done, which is the UK government pays for the university and international student revenue is just free cash flow for UK universities. Well, you, you mentioned earlier that that uh, teaching standards in Australian universities are, are pretty poor. Uh, do, do the international students know this? Do they know what, what kind of an education they're going to be getting? There are massive complaints from international students about the poor quality of teaching in Australia. The biggest one focuses on them complaining that there are too many international students. So we have entire, <laughs> we have entire programs in business and ironically in journalism that are more than 85% international students. And the problem, of course, is that if you're, you know, the typical international student in Australia is Chinese. If you're from the People's Republic of China, you come to an English-speaking country in hopes of improving your English language skills, but everyone in your class is also from China. And so you conduct all of your work in Chinese. And Chinese students have told me that they even do their group work in Chinese and then appoint someone to translate it into English as the final step. Uh, and this is not something that they love. This is something they, they realize is a problem. They came to Australia to meet Australians and learn English. And they're simply not learning the language because they're not embedded in an English-speaking milieu. Uh, there are also complaints from international students about not being able to understand the lecturers, uh, you know, being in classes that are too large. There's a lot of complaints about doing online education for the same price. Uh, because the point is they're not here for the literal education. They're here for the experience of meeting people from another country, from learning English, for learning English, studying in a new mm -hmm. place. And, you know, doing an online tutorial in Chinese from China is really not the international student experience they were hoping for. Well, I'm glad to hear you say all of that was my next question. I, I just, uh, my experience going back to Monash just a few years ago was that uh, the, the, the overwhelming presence of the, of the Chinese uh, population there was comical. 
to the point of that they, they're only notionally studying abroad. And uh, and I just thought from their perspective, as, as you say, that um, you know that it wasn't very fruitful. They might because they, they they weren't intermingling. There was a ghetto-like separation of the student body. There was no interaction at all between when when it, it's a numbers thing. So like you think about it rationally, you go, well, if I was going to study abroad, I'd want to go to Italy and I'd want to be the kind of like the only Australian and then I'd want to just drop myself in and, and really immerse and they didn't get any of that. And um, there's obviously a perverse incentive being uh, offered by the uh, or to the to the administrators to, and they're obviously not telling them on the other end, whoever is setting them up. And I have a friend who works in setting students up with matchmaking them with universities and I think he probably is part of the problem. <laughs> in this way. Right. Well, look, uh, word of mouth gets around, and I'm sure that most Chinese applicants are now aware of the extraordinary concentrations of Chinese students at Australian universities. They, they probably were much less aware 10 years ago. There's still advantages in coming to Australia, but I have to say I talk to a lot of Chinese students. I mean, I'm involved a lot in, in China studies. I don't speak Chinese, but I do um, socialize a lot in the Chinese student community. And I've never heard any Chinese student in Australia say a good thing about an Australian university. I, I think there's a, a, a very high level of dissatisfaction with the education they're getting, but it is an opportunity to get out of China, right? And so even if they're dissatisfied with the university, it might be worth the price for a upper middle class Chinese family to, you know, get their child out, breathe fresh air. I mean, the best experience Australian, uh, Chinese students have of Australia is often they can see a blue sky, which, you know, for someone, if you grow up in Shanghai wow. and you never see a blue sky your entire life, that's, a, that's something worth paying for. But it's certainly not the education. I, I've, I've not heard a single, of the dozens of Chinese students I've had frank discussions with, I've never heard one say that uh, you know, she or he was very satisfied with the education received here. They must also like their, their social credit system being put on pause for a few, for a few months. Yeah, least. it's a yes. bit of freedom. You know, I mean, it's certainly, it, many enjoy living in Australia. Uh, I mean, I even have a Chinese student a former student of mine who started his own adventure tourism company, <laughs> you know, taking other Chinese uh, people to exotic locations in the Australian outback and such, and you know, getting in the great outdoors, things you can't do in China. But it's um, it's not for our sterling education. Well, let's let's pivot to uh, something that's uh, on on everybody's lips, and that's this uh, notion of wokeness. Um, what what effect has wokeness had on the university system? Is, is it as bad as, as we think it is? No, it is not as bad as people say. Um, universities are, of course, very woke places, but that's more the academics than the students. Uh, I bring I routinely bring up very controversial topics in class. I always present multiple sides of topics. I always hide from students what view I may have other than a broadly humane, liberal approach. I'm always very accepting of multiple approaches. And students um, don't seem to be, and I, and I teach sociology, and my students don't seem to be particularly extreme. It's my colleagues who are extreme. Uh, and they simply take for granted that their view of the world is self-evidently the correct view of the world. So the real problem for wokeness isn't that, you know, someone who is Unwoke uh, will be hounded out of a job. I think that's that's very rare. Uh, it's happened, but it's very rare. The real problem is that hiring committees will always hire people like them. Uh, so if you have a a very what the rest of society would consider a very extreme, cutting edge viewpoint on social issues, 
Well, for your hiring committee, that's absolutely an ordinary position on social issues. Whereas if you are a, you know, just a ordinary conservative in line with 40% of the Australian population, mm-hmm. you'll be considered an extremist, maybe labeled a fascist, you know, certainly not someone who they would want as a colleague. And I think that's the real problem. It's self-selection among academics reinforces a single group think. There's a lack of what Jonathan Haidt has called, you know, very aptly viewpoint diversity. That's the real problem. Yes. Well, we're mindful of time, but we would like to, to pivot uh, just with a couple of uh, questions about uh, another book you've you've written while while we while we've got you. Yeah. You wrote a book uh, uh, early in the Trump presidency about populism and authoritarianism. We covered covered this at the beginning uh, briefly. Perhaps you know you could give us just a you know your your definition of uh, populism and and whether Donald Trump was a populist or not. The new authoritarianism, Trump populism, and the tyranny of experts is the book. Uh, Trump is clearly a populist, uh, but I don't use that as an insult. I think populism is a very refreshing. It, it is a way of refreshing a, pl- a political system that has become ossified. Uh, now, what Donald Trump certainly isn't is authoritarian. And the reason I wrote the book, The New Authoritarianism, was I heard the American political establishment routinely calling Donald Trump authoritarian. And I said, as someone who studied authoritarianism, you can't be an authoritarian if the only authority you accept is yourself. And Donald Trump may be egotistical, <laughs> you know, but he's certainly not an authoritarian. An authoritarian is someone who governs with the authority of the leading institutions in society. For the classic authoritarianisms of Southern Europe, that meant the church and the security services. Or for the current authoritarianisms of, say, you know, Iran and Turkey, it's the mosque and the security service. Or for Vladimir Putin's authoritarianism, it's the Orthodox Church and the security services. The institutions of society fully supporting a ruler against the broader democratic will of a country. That, that's, totalit- that's authoritarianism. Donald Trump is absolutely not authoritarian. He was, he was absolutely vilified by the main authorities in society. Uh, populism in general is an anti-authoritarian movement. Now, because authoritarianism, because we all accept that authoritarianism is bad, uh, the establishment has not just recently, but for the last 50 years, last 80 years, uh, attempted to link populism with authoritarianism. But there are no, uh, there's, there's nothing, I mean, they even, everyone likes to go back to Adolf Hitler in Weimar Germany, but Hitler's Nazi movement was anything but a populist movement. I mean, his Nazi movement was a very strict, top-down, um, you know, disciplined movement, not a spontaneous outburst of, uh, of support from the people. I mean, Hitler never even won 50% of the vote in Germany, so it's hard to call him a populist. Uh, but people routinely, you know, want to associate the, not people, establishment intellectuals routinely want to associate these. But it's just meaning, it's just trying to associate something you don't like with something else you don't like. It, there's really no, there's no theoretical reality behind it. Populism rarely has a political position. Populism instead is a, a broad movement of anger with existing politics. I mean, Donald Trump at times on the campaign actually advocated a $15 minimum wage. He advocated all sorts of policies that, you know, where people just were angry with the existing institutions. They weren't necessarily pro-Trump. And I think that stands today. There's no, there's no particular set of policies that you can identify as Trumpism. 
Uh, he's simply an anti-establishment candidate and remains that and will be that if he runs in 2024. Well, I'd love to get your take on the Biden pres- presidency. Um, is this the unity and the business as usual that, that people wanted? Has he delivered that? It's the business as usual that people didn't want. Uh, so he has delivered business as usual, you know, consensus establishment rule in the United States with members of the political establishment doing deals behind the scenes to uh, stitch up, to use the Australian uh, word, to stitch up things, uh, how they like it and present it to the people as a fait accompli. Uh, I don't think that's what people want. I think the Biden administration is likely to be wiped out in the midterm elections in 2022, but in the presidential elections in 2024. Now that people see what the what business as usual really means, I think they're very aware that it's not what they want. People may not be sure what they do want, but I think they're sure that business as usual is not it. There's a view, there seems to be a view amongst the Democrats and their surrogates and the media and the Hollywood and everywhere else that there's only one legitimate party, one legitimate point of view on every issue. So, so much so that if you stray from these norms, you're censored, docked, shadow banned, tarred, you know, whatever. So if the views of the Democratic Party uh, and their like are indeed intrinsically legitimate and watertight, why are they so concerned about counterarguments and dissent? Well, that is the new authoritarianism of my book's title. It's a new form of liberal authoritarian. It's America's liberal establishment in alliance with the liberal establishment in, in other countries, uh, trying to monopolize the political space to present a to present an establishment view as a consensus view, when in reality there is no consensus. And as long as we have democracy, of course, every two years, or depending on Australia, every three years, we'll have a check on that. Uh, you know, we, we have the people getting to weigh in and say, are you doing things right? I mean, to my mind, democracy is not so much about representation as it is about the ability to fire your representatives. And in America, that ability is alive and well. Uh, We're going to see a bloodbath at the 2022 midterm elections because people are unhappy with the way they've been represented. Uh, We we, we have a final question for you. We, We ask all our guests this, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. As an academic, reading is my job. So I'm always reading lots of things, and uh, I don't always like them. (laughs) So I can't give you a – I'm not going to give you a book recommendation, uh, but it's just what we do. I would encourage people just to be reading and reading all the time and audiobooking. Uh, When you're not reading, just uh, put on the headphones and audiobook. It's a great thing to do. Well, what I will do is encourage people to read your books, uh, Salvatore. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Very including kind. The, the, including Australia's universities, Can They Reform? And the, and the second book uh, we mentioned, the, uh, the New Authoritarianism, Trump Populism and the Tune of Experts, which I have read. Uh, where can people find you online, Salvatore? Where can they find your work? Oh, just Google Salvatore Bobonis. Um, or read Quadrant. I write a, a monthly humor column for Quadrant called The Philistine. And uh, I'm very proud of it, uh, getting a chance to try my hand at humor a bit and poke fun at Poke fun at everything. I really enjoy it. Mm, that's great. And and you're back on Twitter. So, <laughs> well, only only <laughs> at, at a reduced capacity until the deal goes through. Right. Yeah, I like to encourage <laughs> Elon to, uh, you know, to go for it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you for having me. 